When you do what you love, like running, racing, enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. You need to make a change. And that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Founded in 2009 by top scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard, Inside Tracker is a personalized health and wellness platform like no other. It's purpose built to help you live a longer, more productive life. The first time you use Inside Tracker, its patented algorithm analyzes your biometric data and offers you a clearer picture than you've ever had before of what's going on inside your body. Next, Inside Tracker provides you with a concrete, science-backed action plan for reaching your health and performance goals. Then, using the Inside Tracker app, they track your progress every day, every step of the way. For a limited time, DNF listeners get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to insidetracker.com/dirt to get your discount code and start using Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. Anyone who's ever worked through a mental illness, whether it's the lifelong, low-grade debilitating type or the brain chemistry equivalent of a mild cold type, has one thing in common. Someone that loves you has definitely told you to try yoga. Personally, there have been times in my life when my outward presentation and overall vibe was so close to being the human equivalent of a Smith song, total strangers have told me to try yoga. But being the least coordinated extra in an involuntary Lululemon commercial never really worked for me. Instead, let me propose a solution that may be more effective and is absolutely no more absurd. And before you ask, it's not a meditation app. Have you tried comedy? I'm not talking about the self-depreciating, hiding behind humor as a self-defense mechanism thing either. To me, that feels like a cheap shortcut. I'm also not talking about laughter as medicine. In my experience, the best medicine tends to be medicine. What I'm talking about is using comedy and humor to authentically and genuinely process what you're feeling and connect with others. Not that I think we all need to flood local open mics because, dear God, that might be worse than yoga. What I'm talking about is honestly and truly looking at the dark stuff happening in our world, in our lives, and in our own heads, leaning in and maybe laughing at it just a little bit. And I'm definitely not the first person to think this. Comedy's true original think piece bro, Aristotle, had been defending the form since 335 BCC, before Comedy Central. In his Poetics, Aristotle argues that comedy, which actually originates in the tradition of what was called a phallic procession, was partly overlooked by serious scholars because of its base, ugly, and bodily nature. Interestingly, phallic procession remains an accurate description of comedy today. Basically, Aristotle was a fan, and he thought comedy was really good for people. He thought it was great for public life and society generally. And I agree, but less because it offers a humorous reflection of Greek society, but because of what's at its core, empathy and true connection. For something to actually be funny, I think you have to really sit with it and understand it, particularly if it comes from one of the darker, spookier corners of your own brain. You have to stare into that void, see it for what it is, and express it in a way that makes sense for other people. For a joke or a bit to land, it has to distill some specific or universal truth down to just a few short lines and convey them in a way that's immediately recognizable. We say it's funny because it's true, and it's that truth, that connection, that thing that tickles the back of our own brains and says, hey, I've felt that too. 
The laughter is just a release of that tension. I'm totally not alone. I was supposed to release this episode about a month ago, but then there was a mass shooting, so I didn't. Then there was another mass shooting and another, and I kept holding on because I just didn't have anything useful to say. And the last thing we need is more noise. In those dark moments of either collective or personal pain, I don't want to have a cheeky take or cynically shout into the void. I want true connection, not the shallow one-way road of superficial internet fellowship or podcast hot takes. Things are hard, and being alive today would make even the most chaotic of Aristotle's Dionysian theater exploits seem tame in comparison. In the face of all the world's hurt and drama, I propose comedy. Because we do need that release, and we desperately crave that connection. And while I deeply believe that you need to feel your feelings to work through them, for me, the final step in that process is being able to laugh at them. Not laugh them off and dismiss them, but laugh them in and really, really understand them. I always think of the image of the comedy and drama mask, you know, the emoji with the mask of the very sad face and the very happy face. I feel like this image gives the false impression that comedy and drama, happy and sad, are two different ends of the human feeling spectrum, when in reality, I feel like they're so close together that a lot of times they're kind of the same thing. We're all part of one big dramedy, or tragic comedy. You take your pick. I also feel that at its best, responding to things with authentic humor feels like the exact opposite of wearing a mask. There's no hiding in real humor. It's funny because it's true. Comedy is your deepest vulnerability, exposed for all the world to see. Comedy is connection. We're all unwitting members of a ginormous improv troupe, messing up and figuring it out and making it up as we go along, laughing, together. This is DNF from Trail Runner Magazine, a podcast about failure in life and running. I'm Zoe Rome. Monitoring it as I go. Yeah, I got a signal, so I think we're good to go. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm muted. I don't know how I did that. Now I'm now I'm now I'm not. All right. This is actually I'm not sure he really needs an introduction, but if he did, this would be it. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. And here he is, a man who wants to know how many roads he needs to walk down before we call him a host. It's Peter Sagal. But he's not just the host of NPR's number one syndicated news quiz show. He's also a runner and has been for many years. Oh, I remember the first the first run very vividly uh, because it was so painful. Uh, to, a trauma imprints in the hippocampus. Um, I uh, was 15 years old. I was not an athletic young man. I was, in fact, the opposite of that. I was bookish and nerdy and such and such. And uh, as per that, you might expect, I, I was a little chubby, always had been. And at the age of 15, when I was filled with, shall we say, disapproval of just about everything about myself and the way that some people get at that age, I decided to do what I could to improve. So I asked my father, who was a, an avid jogger from, you know, the 70s running boom era, 
uh, if I could go with him on a run. So I was around 15 years old. Uh, it was a spring morning, uh, and he woke me up at 6 a.m., and I put on my, you know, my kid's sneakers. This would have been 1980. And uh, off we went, and I made it about half mile before my lungs started to explode. So Peter went home disappointed but not defeated. He resolved to try again the next day. And so he got up early and ran again, and again, and again. A week of running turned into a month, and that turned into a year. That year of running turned into a successful youth running career, and Peter went on to join his high school cross-country team. He even kept running well into college. But after graduating, Peter got married and threw himself into his career. And his running fell by the wayside for a few years until he turned 40. Buying a leather jacket didn't seem like a big enough step towards a midlife reckoning with mortality, and an Eat, Pray, Love-style globetrotting tell-all memoir adventure felt like overkill. So he signed up for a marathon, a sort of Goldilocks solution for a midlife crisis. I ran a marathon, the Chicago Marathon, in 2005, and that turned out to be a signal event because I finished it instead of saying to myself, oh, well, I've done that, let's go, you know, what's my next midlife crisis? I said to myself... I wonder if I could do that faster. So I've run 15 marathons since then. And then something magical happened. Peter transformed from that liminal place of being someone who ran into becoming a runner. It's a transition that doesn't happen overnight, but somewhere in between lost toenails, obscure message boards, and increasingly short split shorts. Peter traveled a lot, hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me out of concert halls and university auditoriums. Throughout his hectic travel schedule, Peter kept running. In almost every case, the only way I would ever find out not only what the place was like, but literally where I was, was by going for a run or two while I was there. One of the challenges, let's call it, of modern life is the homogeneity, that wherever you go, there are the same restaurants, the same hotels, the same design, the same kind of streetscapes. So if you don't get out and run, you know, you'll never find out where you actually are. Like a lot of people, I buy a lot of running shoes, and they're the same running shoe. And once I, you know, got a shoe, I stuck with it. So I, I've got about 10 pairs. I don't know how many I've got lying around the house. I usually have like three active shoes at any given time. And on a couple of occasions, when I've reached for the shoes, I haven't carefully checked and brought two left ones. Uh, on one occasion, because I was out for a while in Portland, which is one of my very favorite places to run, and the idea of not being able to run for like three days in Portland made me crazy. I just bought a new pair of shoes. They weren't my shoes. They didn't fit well, but I used them for the weekend, Getting got terrible blisters and threw them out. So I ended up paying about $120 just to go running during a three-day trip to Portland. Peter's speed was really taking off. He ran marathon after marathon, looking to bring down his time. Between all the running and all the time on the road with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, his domestic situation started to unravel. Marriage, relationships, and running marathons are all pretty similar, or at least I'm told, as someone who has never been married and has yet to run a road marathon. They're difficult. They take a long time, uh, and they require a lot of practice, um, and they require a lot of dedication, uh, and sometimes they end. Marital DNFs are rarely easy. No one comes to the start line of a race or a relationship thinking, eh, whatever happens, happens. I can always give up at halfway and eat pretzels till the sag wagon comes. In fact, most people very publicly stand up in front of their friends and family and proudly pronounce, I am going to do this thing. And if you decide to stop, there's no free ride back to the start line. But when career and relationships start to rub, chafing is inevitable. 
To soothe that friction, Peter turned to the balm of running. Many of us are used to leaning on running in times of emotional need, whether for some amount of stress relief, fresh air, or as an excuse to not refresh the seemingly endless stream of grim news. It certainly helps, I think, with any situation that anybody might be dealing with in this life, be it a difficult relationship, uh, a chronic illness, um, a difficult work situation, anything that is sort of an ongoing stress, to run. Uh, and I think there are a number of benefits. One is purely psychological. When you're in the middle of something, one of the best things to do is run away from it briefly. Go outside, run around, get out of your head where you're worried about stuff. Running training is also great mental resilience training for just about anything that you might go through. Learning to just keep putting one foot in front of the other is a valuable skill, as is learning to run the metaphorical life mile that you're in. There are some tough miles. Those miles when you've come a long way and you've still got a long way to go, but it just seems impossible. But we also have learned that when that happens, what you do is you lower your sights. You don't think about the five miles. You think about the next half mile or even the next step. And one of the things that long distance runners learn is that if you just string together enough steps, it becomes a mile. You string it together above miles, it becomes a bunch of miles and that becomes a race. One of the things I found as I was, when I suddenly and much to my surprise started going through a very difficult situation in my domestic life that seemed interminable and impossible, that my uh, running training really helped. While running was mostly a positive force in Peter's life, it also became a bit of a crutch. It wasn't just an escape from the mentally grueling aspects of a disintegrating marriage, but also a very real physical escape from the spaces that were starting to feel less and less welcome. One of the things I look back on and realize now is one of the reasons I dedicated myself so seriously to running between, say, 2005 when I started and 2012, when, which was the last year of my marriage, was in part probably to get out of the house because it was becoming a, a difficult place to be for a lot of reasons. I wonder about that. You know, yes, I've got to go run two hours or I've got to go fly someplace for a marathon. And I have mixed feelings about that now, as you can imagine. Lots of people pick up new hobbies or double down on established ones. Once, after a tough breakup, I got super into origami. Like, I made about a thousand paper birds because I just needed something to do with my hands that had nothing to do with the internet but also didn't require too much attention. I hung them from my ceiling, gave them away as gifts, and now every time I move or do a deep clean, there's going to be a little paper bird reminder in my sock drawer or tucked into an old book. These ruptures are incredibly disruptive, especially if the break is less than friendly. This divorce turned Peter's life upside down. All of a sudden, you're not seeing your kids. You're not living in the same place. Uh, the friends that you thought you were, were, were friends of both of yours turns out to be friends of just your ex-spouses, or they become that way. So you lose touch with other people. Your relationship with other people change. And for me, the one of the things that was constant through this extremely tumultuous time was my running. Not just the fact that no matter what happened, I would get up every day and try to get in a few miles, but also my running community. I run with a group of friends who I've been running with for about 15 years now. You know, no matter what else was going on, I would get up and I would go running with my friends on the weekend or a couple days a week, and it would be like normal. I don't know if I would have been able to get through all this if I hadn't had that habit. Newly divorced, Peter jumped at every chance to get out of the house. So when the opportunity to run the 2013 Boston Marathon as a guide for a visually impaired runner presented itself, he took it. Hear more after the break.
When you do what you love, whether it's running, racing, podcasting, or hosting an award-winning NPR news quiz, you want to feel good to perform inside and out. This podcast is all about how interchange can have big outside impacts. That's why we're partnering with Inside Tracker. For a limited time, my listeners get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to insidetracker.com/dirt to get your discount code and start using Inside Tracker today. was headed to run the Boston Marathon, guiding his friend William, a visually impaired runner. Peter had run Boston before and knew the course well. It's an amazing course. Over 500,000 fans and spectators line the point-to-point asphalt traverse that starts in Hopkinton and ends on Boylston Street. Being able to guide a fellow runner along the 26.2-mile course gave Peter the exact distraction that he needed amidst the shakeup of his domestic situation. And his runner, William, was not having the best day. Cramping, GI issues, anything that could go wrong did. That ended up as 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 difficult as it might have been for William. It was great for me because what I needed, as it turned out, to get out of my own head and my own problems was somebody else's problems to focus on. So I became the most divided runner's guide you could imagine. I was like all for this guy. If he had, you know, asked me to pick him up and carry him, even that would have been illegal. I would have been happy to do it. I was, I was just there. I'm going to get William to the finish line. It was my entire purpose of my life. And they kept running and walking, at least a little bit. Those last few miles were a struggle. But Peter kept encouraging William as they inched towards the finish. We were approaching the 25th mile. And anybody who knows Boston or has been there or has run it knows that uh, there's a famous right turn on Hereford, then a left turn on Boylston, and then you're in the last quarter mile or so of the race. You're on Boylston Street. It's 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 almost like a you know a canyon of champions like they have in downtown New York. There are people lining the streets, shouting. It's very exciting. And I said to William, "You can't walk that. You have to finish the Boston Marathon at a run, right? We're, we we got to do that." And he didn't know if he could. But when we got there, he kept running. He ran and found some inner strength that I don't know where he got it from. And he ran that last mile, you know, even picking up speed as we were heading down Boylston Street toward the finishing chute. And it was amazing. And I just remember it so vividly in the way that you remember very vivid emotions of being so excited for him and so just thrilled for his achievement and proud of myself for getting him there. And so we crossed the line and it was just glorious. And he just collapsed because he was miserable. I had no, I wasn't even thinking about how I felt. I was so focused on him. And because he was in such terrible shape, he had given everything he had to make that run, we were still standing fairly close to the finish line on the other side of it when the bomb went off. The blasts happened about four hours into the race. Well, the 26,000 marathon runners who were approaching the finish line. What we heard was an enormously loud noise, really probably the loudest noise I've ever heard, and very shocking. And not the sort of thing you hear. I mean, we've all heard cars backfiring. We've all heard starter pistols. This was not that. And there was a lot of wondering what it could possibly be because that sort of loud noise, I mean, people were standing like looking around, what the hell was that? And then, of course, a sudden, there was another one. Boom. And every time there were these plumes of white smoke that we could see going into the air. Now, on the other side of the finishing structure, you know, the... The camera, you know, the thing that they build, the scaffolding to hold up the cameras and the signs and all that. And the other side of that, where we couldn't see, 
the clouds were beginning to clear to show the devastation and the injuries and the death. We couldn't see that. We didn't know what the heck was going on, just that there had been these two loud explosions of some kind. And at that point, the people working the finish line were telling us, come on, everybody keep moving, everybody keep moving. They didn't know what was going on, except as we proceeded down the chute, we could see that the supervisors who were connected by radio to Boston Marathon headquarters were beginning to get the news that something terrible had happened, but they weren't sharing it with us. So weirdly, William and I and the, those people who had crossed the finish line at around the same time were the last people in America to find out there had been a bombing at the Boston Marathon. Everybody else, not at the Marathon, was hearing about it on Twitter or on their phones, news alerts or on their TVs. The people way behind us had either seen it or were being held up on the course so they know something had happened. We were just getting our bananas. Peter struggled with that, that brush with chance. How close is close enough to really be there? And how close is too close? On the scene, shaken but okay, NPR put Peter live on the air to cover what was happening. Uh, how close were you to the explosions? Robert, I was about 100 yards beyond the point of the explosion. Sitting in the airport later that day, trying to catch a flight out of Boston, Peter pulled up news clips from earlier to try to piece together a timeline when it hit him. I realized that we crossed the finish line about four to five minutes prior to the bombs going off. Uh, and if William had given in to his absolute fatigue and his discomfort and just walked like he really wanted to do, like he had been doing, would we have gotten by the bomb site before they exploded it? Whether he knew it or not, and he didn't know it, his courage and his grit and his determination to finish that race at a run, ended up being probably the most important half mile he's ever run, and since I was with him, me too. That shook Peter to his core. In a world where so much else felt unstable, relationships, safety, being a witness to a terrorist event was a challenging and traumatic time for Peter to process. But he worked through it by talking to others, diving into his running, and eventually writing his book, The Incomplete Guide to Running, about that and more. Throwing himself into running offered not an escape, but a new point of focus. There's something to be gained by attempting something that you're not supposed to be good at. To give a very direct example, I am talking to you right now for a podcast. I am supposed to be good at this, right? And so it's my job. I host a radio show. So I'm coming to this with pressure on myself. I'm like, I need to be good at this. If, if I'm not good at this, if I say dumb things or aren't sufficiently entertaining for you or your audience, I'll feel terrible. You put pressure on yourself when it comes to these central areas in your life where you presume competence. There's a real benefit to trying something that you don't expect to be any good at. And in, in my case, it's running. I was never an athletic person. Technically, I'm still not. If you were to look at me, you wouldn't say, oh, that guy is a natural runner. You'd say, that guy is a short, stubby Jew with love handles. And because of that, because of that lack of pressure on myself, I was able to just pursue it. I was able to just, right, what's the next thing I need to learn to do? What's the next achievement? Do I need to run hills? Do I need to do tempo runs? What do I need to do? I mean, it's been so long since I've tried to do anything without running at the same time, you know, without starting my days with a run or finishing my day with a run, if that's the schedule works out. Uh, that I don't know how I would do anything if I wasn't running. I don't remember what it was like to sort of walk around in the world and not be a runner. 
And running offered Peter a way outside of work and relationships to fail and learn and grow and move on. When it comes to my professional life, I can't complain. Uh, I, 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 I won the lottery. I stumbled into this job, this hosting this radio show. It's provided me a career and an income and a chance to travel the country and a chance to meet all kinds of people. Uh, it gives me just the right amount of fame, uh, meaning that, you know, most people don't know who I am, but the people who do like me, that's the perfect, that's what you want, right? At the same time, my first marriage was an utter and disastrous failure. I mean, just... Uh, I can't even get into it. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's something you carry with you. And what you do, if you can, is you try not to forget it. You try to use it, right? You try to use it. And what I do in terms of that is I'm married, remarried, uh, much, much happier. Uh, but I use the lessons. What do they do wrong the first time? Um, one of the things I did wrong, by the way, is I spent too much time away running, so I need to work that out. But, you know, in terms of your... What, what did you do to bring that on? And, and there's, a, there's an analogy, maybe, to uh, my marathoning. The first marathon I ran, the one in 2005, I did everything wrong in training. I injured myself. I, I went out too hard. I didn't respect the limits of my training schedule. I just screwed it up, injured myself, missed the last four weeks of training, and barely finished at a limp. It was just the worst, a terrible experience. So I decided to be smart about it for the next marathon, and I did. I, I found a group who knew what they were doing. That's very important. I learned more about training. I trained appropriately. I didn't overstress. I cross-trained. I built up my capacity. Um, in a more gradual and steady way, and I ended up cutting 40 minutes off my time. So, you know, the way to, as hard as it is sometimes, the way to look at failure in running or in life is when you can, I mean, let me, let me put it this way. I was once interviewing Neil deGrasse Tyson um, on my show, and if you know my show, you know we ask these very silly questions. So we asked Neil deGrasse Tyson a very silly question about something or other, and he guessed wrong, and I said, oh, I'm afraid you're wrong. He said, that's great. He said, because when I'm wrong, I just learned something. And that's sort it's kind of annoyingly upbeat, but I think that that's really a good idea. If if you fail at something, you can either just sort of dwell on it or sit in the corner and just dwell about what a failure you are, or you can say, okay, what went wrong? What do they do wrong? What was the mistake? How can I do it better next time? And to go from Neil deGrasse Tyson to somebody else, Samuel Beckett, uh, his advice for life, to the extent that he had it, was, and I quote, fail, fail again, fail better. And that's as good an attitude for dealing with the disasters of life as I've ever come across. Peter doesn't just use running as a means of navigating failure. He also uses it to develop a more nuanced understanding of success. Anyone who's been around sports and sports culture has internalized at least a little bit of the if you ain't first, you're last messaging that we're bombarded with. If you're not the best, what's even the point? Things like running that used to be a source of joy can become just another yardstick to quantify how short we're falling. But I think that's too easy. It takes courage to put yourself out there, not knowing what the results will be in the face of a culture that values results over process. And that's what running is all about, the process. 
unless you are very, very, very gifted, young probably, or competing in very small arenas, you know, very small races, you're not going to win. You know this. You're just not going to win. I am going to be, yes, in the same marathon as Meb Kaflesky. I am not going to beat him. In fact, I am not going to beat most of people here. And once you accept that, your goals go from, I'm going to be the best there is. I mean, you know, God damn it. There are so many movies and TV shows in which the hero, you know, it's like Rocky. We're like, you have to be the champion. You have to be, you know, you have to work hard and you have to be the best. You have to beat everybody. That seems to be the message, especially men are given over and over and over again. You have to be the best. No, you don't. You don't have to be anything. What you can be is the best version of yourself and whatever that means to you that is practically attainable right now. So if you want to be a faster runner, you can train and you can become a faster runner. Do you want to be fitter? You want to be more healthy? Yes, you can put in the effort and do that. You again, like me, will never be on the cover of a magazine. But you, with the appropriate level of discipline and the right knowledge and the right friends to help you along, can achieve things that you might never have thought were possible for yourself. Everybody gets a training montage in my world. Everybody gets a fantastic montage where maybe you don't end up sprinting up the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum and jumping up and down while trumpets play, but you get to do something fun that you didn't think you could do, and then some cool music plays, and everybody is excited for you, because goddammit, you know, two months ago you were sitting on a couch and you were completely out of shape, and you just ran a 5K. You are absolutely Rocky Balboa, as far as I'm concerned. And because, what the heck, I already have the rights to this rad ukulele cover, I'm going to play you out. This is the part where you do a double fist pump. This episode of DNF was written and produced by me, Zoe Rome for Trail Runner Magazine. Theme music by the band Lotus. Other music is written and performed by Bitbeak. If you like this podcast, take a second to rate and review it on your favorite platform. You can find this episode and other installments of DNF at trailrunnermag.com.